Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. And welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Consequence of Sound film editor Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and I'd like to introduce my guest for this, the third episode of Filmography, Stanley Kubrick. Hello, my name is Randall Colburn. I am a senior writer at Consequence of Sound. I'm also a co-host of the Losers Club podcast, a Stephen King podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm a freelance writer for the AV Club, The Guardian, a couple other publications. And hey, I love Stanley Kubrick. Randall, I couldn't agree with you more. Hi, I'm <laughs> I'm Justin Gerber, also also a senior writer, at Consequence of Sound, and also a co-host of the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Um, Randall is a freelance writer as well for the Guardian and AV Club. <laughs> in case you didn't hear that already, <laughs> everything else is the same. But I am uh, a huge Stanley Cooper fan, and I'm happy to discuss these three films today. Well, thank you, too, for joining me. As always, thank you to all of you for listening. Please leave us a rating on iTunes and or Podchaser. Those help more than you can possibly understand. You can find us on Facebook at Filmography, a filmmaker's podcast. You can find me on Twitter at D. Suzanne Mayer. And you can find Stanley Kubrick, footage not found. <laughs> so... For the third week of our show, which if you're just tuning in, you have about four hours of back listening to do, so go back and do that first. But if you are just tuning in, we're breaking down the entire feature-length body of work by Mr. Kubrick on the eve of what would have been his 90th birthday, and as a number of his films are returning to recent prominence, such as the 50th anniversary re-release of 2001 this summer. But this week, we're going to be talking about the sensual quarter of Kubrick's filmography. I'm bringing it down low, mm. like the <laughs> keying into the legacy of WNUA 95.5 Smooth Jazz Chicago. Wow. I, I'm, we're, we're going back. We're going back in time this week. But anyway, now that I've properly set a mood, the, this week's three films for discussion are going to be 1962's Lolita, 1971's A Clockwork Orange, and 1999's Eyes Wide Shut. Now, given that we're... Exp- exploring human desire not like in the studio just on the episode um we're looking at the widest birth between release dates of any episode on this podcast series because we're going from lolita which is the very beginning of kubrick more or less beginning to get subversive we talked about this a little last week with paths of glory and spartacus but with both of those films, Kubrick was still very much working within the restrictions of the studio system. And he was again with Lolita, but you're starting to see the shift in cultural mores of the 1960s. And while Lolita, as we'll talk about shortly, wasn't exactly exempt from that shift, you could also see the tide beginning to turn with filmmakers being allowed to experiment a lot more throughout the 60s with the kind of subject matter they could get away with in a major movie. And... 
by the end of this, you have a film that Kubrick delivered quite literally the day before he passed away in Eyes Wide Shut, which by then came into a very different era of pearl-clutching controversy. (laughs) But before we dive right in, I want to kind of explore a basic question, which is, how does Kubrick understand human desire? Um, I would say it's, I think... um how do I phrase this? I think like human desire and sex in these movies specifically, they it's, it's a means to an end almost. Uh, I think that there's a sense of, you know, sex is rarely a way of showing uh, that one loves another one in these movies. It's usually used as a means of control or retribution. I think Um, there's a violence to it. I mean, even in a, in um, Eyes Wide Shut, I think that there's a violence to the sex in terms of what it represents emotionally for uh, Tom Cruise's character. I think it's a, that it's about how men should tread lightly when it comes to desire. I think that my other my other thing I had here is a more more inelegantly cool down, bro. <laughs> for really for all three of the of the the quote unquote protagonists, the protagonists slash antagonists, I guess you could say of these films and hum. Um, Alex and Bill, I, I'm interested to talk about whether or not these are sensual films or not. I think that's uh, there's a fine line to be drawn there, and what what sensuality is later on. There's just such you a know, selfishness to to the sex in these movies. I Absolutely. mean, and that's the thing about you know when we talk about Lolita, when we talk about Clockwork Orange, talk about Eyes Wide Shut, especially. I mean, Lolita, we have a man who is you know a pedophile, but doesn't. Um, and this is. I think something Kubrick captures that uh, uh, Nabokov also did with the book, which is just the whole idea of there's no consideration given to the girl. She is simply an object to be desired. And then with, you know, Clockwork Orange, uh, there's just the selfishness of taking whatever you want whenever you want it. And then with Eyes Wide Shut, you know, I mean... Tom Cruise uh, hears that his wife fantasized about sex with another woman. So his immediate impulse is to go and cheat on her. And so I think that sex to me is in these movies is uh, just a deep, deep form of selfishness and um, impulse. Well, and it's interesting you bring up the point of specifically women existing as objects on the periphery of these films, no matter how integral to the narrative, you get um, a general sense with these movies and really with Kubrick at large, because we talked about last week how peripheral women were to hyper-masculine stories like Spartacus and Paths of Glory again. But what's really interesting with these films is that, especially in the case of Lolita and Eyes Wide Shut, films which really center the women in the lives of the male protagonists Mm -hmm. in a really strong way, you still get this sense that these are not their stories. And whether that's just something textual that Kubrick is working with from a narrative standpoint, whether that is a debatable failure of filmmaking, we'll kind of parse that out going forward. And I think it's also really key to keep Justin's point in mind and for me to expand upon upon it just a bit for a second, not only are these movies from the vantages of at least in two of these three cases, pretty objectively bad people, however you want to parse meaning out of that. But these are films that really draw to light the whole idea. A monster never thinks that he's wrong. Right. And especially in the case of Clockwork Orange, that's cast in a really sharp relief because the idea of wrong is itself drawn into question. Yep. That seems like a good way to start off with 1962's Lolita. Lolita. 
Well, what should we do now? Well, you ring down and order breakfast. No, I don't want to do that. Well, what do you want to do? Why don't we play a game? Now, this is the last... I believe the last of Kubrick's films to be made beholden to the Hayes Code, or at least when it had any real clout and power still, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. But now you have Kubrick pushing further and further into the studio system, doing his own kind of movie. Um, Kubrick once famously admitted that if he had known how much censorship he stood up against in adapting Lolita to screen, he probably wouldn't have made the film. And you can sense a certain reluctance exuding from the movie because every time that it starts to really, really push into something subversive, the film will quite literally fade to black, which we'll get to in the (laughs) second half a little more. But what's really interesting about Lolita is that the production itself asks a lot of the same questions that Nabokov's novel asks us to consider, particularly in the fact that Sue Lyon, who plays Lolita in the film, was 14 when production began and 15 when it concluded. So while this was not the precocious, I believe it was a 12-year-old in yeah, the in novel, the book, yeah. these, these, these are petty distinctions, ultimately. Yeah. If we're arguing 12 against 14, the point is we're still drawing into the question, the classic question, how do you make a movie out of Lolita? <laughs> well, I think at the time, the Hayes Code obviously is still in effect. I think it's in effect until 68, but like you said, the power had kind of diminished by 68. Um, they don't actually say her name or her age in the film. Right. And she also looks older than 14. They definitely so found I think, an older presenting actor. Yes. And I think that those were keys into getting it made because, you, yeah, again, if you had a 12 year old or even a 14 year old that really looked like a 14 year old, I don't know if you're making this movie. No. Well, it's kind of like, uh, do you remember when the Ren and Stimpy guy got busted for, um, like, it was revealed that he kept, um, like, underage girls as kind of his girlfriends? I remember one of the most shocking things about that article was when you actually saw the photo of the two of them together and you saw just how young she looked. Mm. I think that's what's really striking when, you know, you read stories about... Um, you know, pedophilia or things of the, that nature. It's, I mean, obviously reading about it is horrible, but when you see just the the physical distinction between an older person and a younger person, it's very striking. And that's, I think, when it can, the reality of it all can really hit you. Well, and James Mason looks like he's not a day younger than 45, <laughs> which really casts a stark kind of contradiction there. Yeah, I think for me, I've just known James Mason as being, Older, especially growing up on Salem's Lot, for instance, where he's this older, mysterious man. So I think just looking at how old he, for me, he, he still appears in this film and comparing it to what Sue Lyon was 14, it's still very uncomfortable to watch throughout, even though we don't see anything really. It's yeah. still well, and very I think it's, unsettling. It's very interesting. Near the beginning of the film, when she's sent off to summer camp, by her mother. Camp Climax. Camp Climax, by the way. Camp Climax. <laughs> Incredible. We, we talked last week about Dr. Strangelove not being a subtle film. And all around, I think we can say at this point, Stanley Kubrick, for all of his many merits, was never an especially subtle filmmaker. No, 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 no. But, so, but when she's sent off to Camp Climax, the one time where you really see them embrace on screen, and I believe she goes as far as kissing him on the cheek, they both turn out of shot. So there is very deliberately no visual representation. This 
film is walking numerous lines. Another example I found it really interesting was that in some releases initially, the sequence where she's asking him to play yeah. the game and whispering in his ear and so on, that was excised from the film as well. So even in a movie that is explicitly about these erotic themes, there is a sense of restraint very much mandated, not just by the text, but by the filmmaking rigors of the time and just the cultural mores at large. Yeah. The worst uh, thing about this is the ending. When you get that final, you get that epilogue that says that he was <laughs> he died in prison of, of a sickness and he was going to be going to trial for killing off Quilty. Just Humbert oh, Humbert God. died on the way back to his home That's planet. How it it's fell. so it, you just knew I, as soon as the ending happened. I went, oh yeah, uh, Hayes Code, right? And it's Hayes Code. Well, I guess for me, you mentioned how do you make a movie out of Lolita? And yeah, there's obviously the um, you know the aspects of the older the you know the horrible relationship that kind of exists at the center of it. Um, I don't think, I, I think that it's a worthy story to tell because I think that it's not a movie that is, um, you know, trying to tell a love story necessarily. And I think that maybe, I think some people, you know, clutch their pearls uh, at first because they think that it's about that. But I think that the both the movie and the book do a very nice job of showing that this is, um, you know, a very one-sided sort of relationship. But I think the real difficulty, I mean, you know, because not to say that she doesn't have interest in him, but the whole point, I think of the book that is inevitably lost when you move to film is that the book is so wholly confined to Humbert's perspective. He is the ultimate unreliable narrator. And that really serves to illustrate, um, I think sort of the central themes and the ideas that, you know, Lolita is not a person. She is an object. She is um, a goal. She's a dream. She's an idealized version of something. And in the book, it's, uh, you know, we we learn a lot about the fact that he is always attracted to young women. He is a pedophile. And a lot of that stems from the fact that he had a traumatic experience when he was young and having sex around that age with a girl. And it's, um, but the thing is that, uh, desire has wholly consumed him and there is no love there. There's just the sense of control and the Mm -hmm. satisfying of his own desires and the sense of ownership. He wants to own this girl. And we, and we do see that very much in the film, but I think that, you know, the fact that Lolita is, um, you know, so filtered through his perspective in the book is one of its key strengths. Uh, in the movie, we still get that, but inevitably, you know, when you have the visual visual representation, you do see more character and she does emerge more fully in a way. But, um, and so I think that you inevitably lose that sense of warped perspective. And I would, I would strongly agree. And I would add that as far as visual representation goes, It runs twofold because not only in adaptation are you making a deliberate choice to represent a real physical woman in the way that Humbert sees her on the page, which is automatically a dramatic choice of its own. But then you're getting into issues of scopophilia where you have a filmmaker like Stanley Kubrick in particular doing that looking and that viewing. Yeah, because I think and. 
again, you know, three dudes talking about Laura Mulvey's male gaze is probably like <laughs> not the place to spend too much of this episode. But Antithesis. I, <laughs> but I do think that there is some value in at least acknowledging that in the act of looking from Kubrick himself, he is himself opening up all these larger questions of what are you doing in depicting this in a more visual way? Yeah. And my question here also, because I have not read the book. I've not read the book. So in the movie, obviously, because we're getting a visual representation, okay, the unreliable narrator kind of goes away because we're literally seeing everything happening. And we do get those sequences, which we'll definitely talk about with Peter Sellers, in which Humber's not present, right? So you have to believe everything you're seeing on, on screen. Two, though, I have, I have a question about this. When Lolita runs back up the stairs to say goodbye to Humber right before she goes to Camp Climax, everybody's favorite camp, <laughs> that the, the Lolita theme kicks in that beautiful sweeping arrangement which is actually a really beautiful theme so is kubrick now playing with the audience saying oh isn't this romantic but really saying this is really fucked up right and i think you're plumbing the central question of the film there because on the one hand you have filmmaking that is very dryly ironic in this way and i feel like that would be more of an over interpretation if you didn't have a filmmaker like kubrick who in movies like Barry Lyndon and Dr. Strangelove would go on to exhibit that same kind of dry sardonic wit in the blackest possible way, even instances of full metal jacket and eyes wide shut evidence this. So I think there is an extent to which doing again, the Lolita theme, this gorgeous sweeping theme that we'll talk about a little more in the second half. It is this very old Hollywood string flowing string sound And normally the grandest romantic overture imaginable, again, applied to a scene of object pedophilia. And there is something suspect in that. And there's something even in the opening shot of the film Mm -hmm. in which an anonymous foot and an anonymous hand, the hand clearly more aged than the foot, delicately painting nails over the opening credits. There is something that is very much kind of a put on, almost like Kubrick doing a nana, I can't touch you of cinema of a sort. Yeah. In kind of daring you to be stunned by how far he'll how close he'll dance to that line. Mm. Well, it also ties, I think, to a running theme in Kubrick's work, which is, you know, the sort of tension in terms of the way he frames shots uh, and builds shots is the tension sort of between wonder and terror. You know, it's like uh, he can create a really beautiful sweeping um, shot that tells so many different little stories. But, you know, there is often the sense of uh, unease or dread or something perverted just kind of beneath the surface. And I think that's especially true of these movies. But, you know, that was, I think, the thing that that's a tension, I think, that he's always very drawn to. And I think it's very important in telling Humbert's stories to especially when you're filtering it through so tightly through his POV is to capture the sense that that is how he feels in that moment, that sweeping string arrangement. I think that's sort of, uh, you know, you make the audience uneasy in a way because you trick, like you were kind of saying, you're, you're tricking the audience in a way. Cause like they're seeing a scene they've seen before with music they've maybe heard before, but the, the, you know, but what we're presenting them is innately perverse. Well, and perversion just beneath the surface is huge in the film at large. Oh, I yeah. even think of the scene early on at the summer dance yeah. in which the neighbors come up and do everything short of announcing on screen that they are swingers yeah. to let Humbert know that they are, in fact, swingers. There is always this peripheral lust and need 
Well, Charlotte even at one point says that she fantasizes about having a friend, like a young French maid yep. come and live with them after Lolita moves away to school. I mean, that's actually another connecting tissue between all three films. I feel like whether it's wanted in every case, everybody in, the, in these three films we're talking about today is, is wants to have sex, is talking about <laughs> sex, or is literally doing the act of sex throughout. Yeah. So bizarre. And I think you bring up another facet of the film we have to address before moving on, which is Shelley Winters as Charlotte Hayes, poor doomed Charlotte Hayes, who makes the mistake of falling in love irreparably with a pedophile. Now, I have to interrupt here. Did, did you get shades of like, Night of the Hunter with this? It's the same type. She's greatness, by the way. But it's the same type of character where she also is used by Robert Mitchum in that movie. And she also dies before the film is out, so the the male protagonist can get what he wants in the end, or the antagonist, I should say. And they can very strange. And they both exude this kind of crawling out of your skin desperation yeah. throughout, which I think is another... especially for the time, especially yeah. for the time. And I think that was, I mean, at the risk of being glib about it, I mean, this was the best way you could pretty much illustrate on screen horniness at the time, like yeah. these. Her crawling all over him and seducing him to dance in the parlor to jazz music was about as openly erotic as you could still get on screen, at least in this country. So she just breaks my heart because and it's it's it has a couple of prongs to it. Not only is the character just so pathetic. um, And of course, I think for me, as I've kind of made clear, I'm always trying to view all these characters through the lens of Humber. And so Mm. I just get the vibe that, you know, we're seeing such a shrill, um, annoying, obsessive woman. And it's such an unflattering character. And I, you know, obviously Shelley Winters is is wonderful, but I think she's she's also very annoying in this movie. And I think that that's purposeful, but it also makes me hurt for her a little bit because the character doesn't feel real to me at all. And I don't think that's a criticism because, as I said, I think that and this is true, I think, in a lot of Kubrick movies is that we're often seeing characters through a very narrow perspective and so i think that like my heart just hurts for that character but at the same time i have to say that i didn't miss her when she was gone i think in all of his films you could usually you could actually use the argument that everything's like kind of like a heightened reality right? exactly yeah yeah this isn't the wire for right instance so right. the histrionics are going to be there they're not going to necessarily play if you're if you're trying to base it in any reality but i agree with you randall in terms of the uh the heartbreak She's annoying. She's shrill. She's desperate, obviously, throughout. If it's just, just coming from Humbert, you know, possibly. But what really gets me is when she discovers the journal. Yeah. And that just beaten down desperation that she kind of exhibits when she just starts to kind of almost flail around the room. And that look in her eyes always gets me. I mean, I've seen this a few times. I'm not, I'm not seeing this every Saturday afternoon or anything like that. <laughs> but that's something that always stuck with me from the first time I saw it years ago was just that is... That was Shelley Winters right there. She got kind of pigeonholed later on in life as playing. I think she was the villain like Pete's Dragon. You know, she drowns in Poseidon Adventure. You know, she's this is this is her right here. This is her in her element. She does swim for a solid seven uninterrupted minutes of screen time before drowning, <laughs> though, which is the best part of that movie she by saves a mile. Them. She saves them all. But honestly, no, I do think especially you bring up a good question of perspective, Randall, because I think especially when it comes to the film, you have to ask this question of how much is it Kubrick adapting Nabokov in the spirit of the novel with that kind of so sardonic, you almost don't know it is tone and how much of it is just 
a struggle of adaptation because, once again, how do you tell a story like Lolita under the cultural restrictions of early 1960s America? Well, the script that Nabokov wrote the script, but it was 400 pages. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and obviously it needed to be worked on, but uh, but also Kubrick and uh, producer James Harris rewrote it almost yeah. entirely. And I, I, I didn't get deep enough in my research to be able to say whether or not that how much of that was because of the standards of the time, which that was a big part of it. And how much was uh, Kubrick, you know, stepping in? And I know that he definitely amped up the quirk. Claire Quilty character, who's a fairly minor presence in the book, ser- serves s- the same function. But uh, it's, you know, to me, it's uh, it makes me wonder about um, about, I guess, like with because th- you can read the book too to be very darkly humorous. And that's, I think, what's so subversive and dark about this material is that it is approached with um, moments of brazen comedy. And I enjoy that in the movie, but I think it also points to a certain um, absurdity and maybe inner, like, kind of uh, innate cruelty to the story that, uh, and I think that this makes me almost in a lot of ways more uncomfortable than Clockwork Orange because he's so unrepentant and completely oblivious to the idea of what he's actually doing to this girl. Well, and I think there's a strong commonality between the two where you're asked to assume for about two and a half hours time in each case the perspective of an irredeemable being, which is actually as good a way as any any to jump into Clockwork Orange then. I won't say a single solitary slogan unless I have my lawyer here. I know the law, you bastards. Right here, I told We'll have to show our little friend Alex here that we know the law, too. But that knowing the law isn't everything. Because to jump forward to 1971, where the X rating now exists, <laughs> Kubrick is going to give that a workout with yes. his adaptation of Anthony Burgess' novel about a futuristic dystopian Britain where so-called droogs go around drinking drug-laced milk, committing rape and ultraviolence as the kind of teenage zeitgeist events of the time. And listening to horrifying synthesized renditions of beautiful musical compositions. Yeah. Now, Wendy Carlos. Yes. We are going to talk about Wendy Carlos in the second half because, good <laughs> Lord, yeah. this is some of the best music in any Kubrick movie. Mm-hmm. We'll get back there, I promise. But in adapting Clockwork Orange, you drag out a very different kind of question of adaptation because where Lolita has these issues of perspective, Clockwork Orange offers the same thing, but through an even denser lens because the entirety of Burgess' novel is written out in Droog speak, which yeah. I believe is a mixture of slang English, slang Slavic, and I believe there's another element that's passing me as well, a... Well, just like rhyming. Like, it's very Joycean. Like, if you go to, like, Finnegan's Wake, where a lot of it is very... And, like, you know, the way British people speak, where they 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 develop catchphrases and stuff, or, like, little phrases by rhyming certain things. You know what I mean? Um, and then the the meaning kind of changes over time. Mm-hmm. But it remind me, I think like there's definitely like Joycean elements in there where it's a lot of like words mashed together and then forced to rhyme in various ways. So absolutely. And I think there's something really interesting, too, in how when I found myself rereading the novel for this recording, I could hear Malcolm McDowell and some of the other characters rattling it off, which actually makes the novel more comprehensible in its way, if anything. Yeah. But you have McDowell going through this entire narrative progression from being 
I mean, this is a moral conundrum I was saying to Randall before the show that horror filmmakers have been toying with for decades since this film came out, which is you can watch a film, you can watch a protagonist do absolutely reproachable things. And then you are asked to, by the end of the film, feel, if not empathy, then certainly a kind of understanding of that same protagonist, which is another exhausting exercise in moral perspective, but also raises the question, I mean, how, I'll ask the broad one here, I suppose, how does this movie hold up today? You go first, Randall, because I think it might be a little more in defense of it. I, I am too. I'm. I, I think that it holds up well, which is surprising. I. It's. I think the thing about this movie that's really special is that this is. It is another matter of perspective. Um, you know, Kubrick really uses the the fisheye lens, like the the wide. You know, like um, what's am I using the right phrase for that? Like the the distorted lens. You know, that really widens on the sides. And it creates sort of a funhouse mirror. A lot of times we see those kinds of shots. Mm -hmm. And at the center of it is Alex all the time. He's usually the character that is not distorted. He is the character that is probably the most honest of all the characters. And I think that is why we can watch his journey and understand. Because the people that he's surrounded by are very hypocritical, mm. they're very dishonest, they're very cruel, um, and they're liars. And even his, you know, there's a there's a sense of, like, there's a sense of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's, a, like, they're disingenuous, they're not real people. And I think that's where, you know, the funhouse aspect of the movie comes into it, is, like, his mother wearing all the wigs, and they're all dressed in these very strange things but i think for alex though yes he does horrible things um actually it's in the movie it's softened a lot from the actual book although in the book he's much younger he's supposed to be like 14 15 and um but he but i'd say that i think that um the way that we are allowed into his world is because we're forced to in a way because it feels like an, in another instance with humbert we're seeing it through his eyes but also he is a character that remains consistent. You know what I mean? In terms of we're watching him be manipulated out of his own uh, instincts and personalities, which is why the ending is so subversive, because as dark as it is, the idea that he's embraced again, the dark side of him, it feels like a celebration because it's like he's found his true self again. It's it's at once one of the most cathartic and revolting film endings I've ever seen, easily. I 100% agree. I don't think we're ever supposed to come around to him. I, I There's never a moment in this movie where I feel like, you know, I can kind of see why he does these things, or oh, good for him, I'm happy he's gonna, I'm happy he's back to normal at the end. I think that is the challenge of this movie, because I think, I think at this time, first of all, even what, this has been 46 years, 47 years this movie came out, you still don't see this character ever. Even now, you, you do not see this type of a character. And if you do, it's been resigned to iTunes somewhere, on like their <laughs> new and noteworthy or recommended section somewhere. Like The fact that this is his follow-up to 2001 is is it, unbelievable. It's remarkable in a lot of respects because he had the cultural clout after 2001 to pretty much make anything he wanted and he chose this, which I think is remarkable in its way because one of the anecdotes from the recent documentary Filmworker about Leon Vitali, Kubrick's longtime right-hand man, 
Um, he came into Kubrick's orbit orbit with Barry Lyndon when he was cast in the film. But Vitaly first came into an awareness of him, among other things, when he saw A Clockwork Orange and he watched Malcolm McDowell in it and he commented on how he felt like it was a theatrical performance put to screen, which I think kind of, to your point, Randall, about the funhouse mirror aesthetic of a lot of the film, it kind of it situates Alex then as this dramatic on-screen ringleader of a sort. If yeah. this is all a perverse dystopian circus, then he is the ringleader of it. It's a sexual dystopia, really. You know, when you look at, especially all the artwork, not just in his apartment, yeah. but even when he goes to the cat lady for the attack and the cat lady, it's <laughs> all these women sculptures. in submissive positions in the, in the paintings and the, all the penis um, yeah. statues and whatnot. Yeah. But I wanted to say this about the film because obviously it's a very ugly film and it's one of those movies where you could look at it and say, why am I watching this, right? <laughs> it's not pleasant by any means. But first of all, Kubrick's style is, it's his style, right? This isn't a Serbian film. A Serbian film is just made to disgust you. There's no style behind that movie at all. I okay. I, re I really feel like I was going to try to never mention a Serbian film on I this podcast. You were the one that talked so about this a couple you. years ago, and I actually mistakenly said, you know, maybe I should check this thing out. But what I want to say is something that the, the homeless man says before he takes his beating early on in the movie. And he says, it's a stinking world because there's no law and order anymore. It's a stinking world because it lets the young get onto the old like you've done. Oh, it's no world for an old man any longer. What sort of a world is it at all? And I think that's what we're exploring throughout the entire movie. It's just how much depravity can we get into here? And we see it through Alex. And it's, it's his story. Well, and I think you bring up a really good point with that, too, because I talked about in the first episode a little bit how Kubrick moved over to Great Britain in the 60s for what would be the rest of his life. Because not only did he have a terror of flying, but he also... He was terrified of urban violence and what the country was coming to. So this idea of a youth-driven dystopia was very close to him, even in adaptation. And so you don't get—I drew the Frank Miller comparison in the first week, and I feel like that's a serious misnomer here because there's a thought to Clockwork Orange, whatever you might make of it, that's at odds with a lot of just that— empty stylized tough guy posturing yeah. but that's just the thing too for such a for again the funhouse mirror version of masculinity that alex represents in a lot of respects because his idea of sex is fast violent brutal consent irrelevant that is how he understands it mm -hmm. desire in this instance is power it's the whole idea Everything is about sex except for sex, which is about power, right? It's the whole notion. Did you just quote Janelle Monáe? I, I, <laughs> I might have. I think you did. Very but, close. Very close. But um, <laughs> be that as it may, this is how Alex understands his self in this world. His self is to do these things. And again, there's not a lot of question of why he's doing them. It is just what you do. And I think a lot of the surrealist horror of the film comes from just the pragmatic simplicity of a lot of it. Well, along those lines, I think the word that you can really apply to, especially the first Lolita and Clockwork Orange and arguably Eyes Wide Shut, is the word unsentimental. There mm. is no sentimentality in these movies, and I think that's where they succeed. We live in a culture now where I think the reason people fail when they try to write a character like Alex is because they feel like they've been they've had studios or uh f you know test audiences shove words like likability down their throat to such a degree that you and i see this on you know i had to review um i had to review uh the hbo series succession um for a piece for av club and you know and it's like 
I think what I struggled with was this movie can't fully embrace the satire because it seems hamstrung to the idea that at least one of these characters needs to be relatable or likable. And um, it gives it this there's this like quiet strain of sentimentality that if they excised it, I think the show would be a lot stronger. Uh, Sometimes there needs to be, you know, people kind of. Uh, perceive Kubrick to be a very cold filmmaker sometimes. And, you know, I don't think I'd use that phrase, but at the same time, he he doesn't, he's not somebody who needs you to identify with his characters to tell his stories. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. Like in, I, in 2001, nobody likes 2001 because of the characters. You know what I mean? They're great and all, but it's like, and, and then, but I feel like the tough thing about Clockwork Orange is that it is all about a character. But the reason he succeeds is because he and Malcolm McDowell and Burgess all together have created such a uniquely fascinating character who is as charming and um, beguiling as he is cruel. But never once does the film try to goad us into liking him yeah. or relating to him. His story is so um, it's 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 told like beat by beat in terms of what happens to him. And uh, through every single moment of it, he remains true to himself, even as he's being. Uh, but until but then when you realize that he's having that sense of self-honesty stripped away from him and he's being dehumanized, then you almost that's why the ending is so bizarre, because you don't want him to go back to torturing and killing people. But at the same time, that's not the movie's not about a character's journey so much as it is uh, an exploration of the idea of, you know, like what's better like to be. Wait, hold on. I wrote this down. I like this. I I, I was. uh reading some essays and I got this really like kind of great uh, summation that I thought was really strong, but it's, is it better to be bad of one's own free will or good because you were brainwashed to be good? I think Mm -hmm. that's sort of the key question for me at the core of this movie. And I think that's why it really holds up. And also like, we need to see, we need to see the violence. Uh, And I think that's why I don't have a problem with it. It's extremely gratuitous, but it's also filmed in a cartoonish way uh, with absurd music playing with it. I mean, we're going to talk about the music later, obviously, but I think the music is key. The the visual language is key. The performances are key. There's such a theatrical quality to it that none of it quite feels real. To piggyback off of what you're talking about, about filmmakers over the last... 45 years or whatever, trying to cap, trying to capture what Kubrick was able to capture here and what McDowell was able to capture here. Look no further than today's news of three from hell from Rob Zombie. Right? <laughs> yeah. You, he is making these movies for you to root for these characters. Yeah. Right. Even though they do things that are just as awful as what Alex does in these movies, rape, torture, murder, doesn't matter what, you, what age, doesn't matter the sex. And I think, <laughs> As I get older, it's harder for me to like, you know, really embrace those particular films. But I'm still able to embrace something like Clockwork Orange because, again, you're not being asked to approve of what he's doing. Right. And you're not being asked to root for him in any way. Right. Um, there's something that the priest says early on. It's not early on. When he's in jail for the first yeah. time. And he says, goodness comes from within. Goodness is chosen. When a man cannot choose, he ceases to be a man. And so I think the second half of the film is much more about, you know, the most sympathetic we can be with Alex is when he's got the device holding his eyes open. Because we are now being put in that situation of what, what would we do if we had those devices keeping our eyes open and, and having to be witness to those images, no matter who you are. That's as sympathetic as you get because you can put yourself into that situation. You cannot put yourself, I hope nobody in this room can put yourself into any of the other situations that Alex 
is putting himself in. Mm-hmm. So. Well, at least he's choosing that. And yeah. you just you were talking about this idea of choice. You know, when he has his eyes open, I think that's such a key shot because he has no choice. He cannot yep. look away. And that to me always gave me those shots, not just because I hate the idea of like spiky things being by my eyes, Ugh. but <laughs> but I think just the general idea of being unable to look away from something as somebody who does look away from things. Uh, sometimes it is a that's a horrifying, anxious uh, experience. Well, and there's something really savage and really frightening of the idea of he's being forced to look at all the things that he has done in equivalence. Yeah. I think that's a brutal irony of that scene that really gets slept on sometimes. He's being forced to watch videos of violent pornography and just assault. Yeah. And he's being forced to watch the things that he does for a third party perspective for what may well be the first time in his existence, mm-hmm. which is horrifying in its own way. It's that notion of being strapped to the chair watching something. It's I I don't much care for the film Funny Games, but it's the conundrum that Michael Hanukkah puts forth in that film, which is if you are looking, are you already complicit? Yeah. Regardless yeah. of what you do once you're looking. Once you're looking, are you then implicated? Well, it's interesting, too, how Kubrick fought against uh, Burgess's ending of the novel, uh, which, um, you know, there's an epilogue in the novel where uh, is that was that in the version you read? Because there's two different versions out there. It is. I read the one with the epilogue. Yeah, the epilogue where Alex basically chooses uh, to abandon that old life. And there it mm. is. You know, it's like, you know, in that. But I think that Kubrick didn't like that because he said that it's not consistent with the book. But it also does cheapen the themes, I think, a little bit because it makes things a little too easy. I 100 percent agree. Yeah. I think you got to go with the movie ending. But because I mean, essentially it's basically saying, you know, it boils the book down to um, you can't be forced to change. You have to make that choose that change yourself. And that is a very valuable uh, theme, I think. But it's not I think that Kubrick was trying to make a movie about human nature and the idea of um, what we're compelled to do as animals. You know what I mean? And the idea that, uh, you know, a tiger can't change his stripes or a zebra can't change his stripes. Is that the phrase? Am I saying it wrong? It makes 100% sense. Uh, Yeah. You know, you can't. um, And I just think that that to me is a much meatier, more provocative uh, theme. Well, and the only thing I'll say for the ending of the book is that I think there's an additional bite in this notion that you can do all these savage things and you can exist in kind of this parallel world. And then I think there's a really biting comment on privilege and the whole idea that then whenever you're (laughs) bored of it, you can put it down and get an office job just like everyone else. Totally. It's the it's the same irony of the train spotting ending. It's I'll be just like you. Yeah. Yeah. That's for that's a really interesting look at it. Yeah. And if we're talking about kind of matters of perspective in terms of the person you're going to be for the rest of your life, that's a good place to jump into (laughs) Eyes Wide Shut, which is one of the more biting movies I've ever watched about getting into or at least knocking on middle age and wondering if this is the person you're going to be forever. Please, 
uncomfortable. Because Eyes Wide Shut is about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And as much as anything, we can read this as a master's thesis of Kubrick's themes, right? Because in a lot of respect, you have the 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 conceit of looking both sexually and just in general but looking and watching and following that have pervaded throughout his entire career you have a lot of gorgeous long takes you have a lot of beautiful natural light i honestly don't think he had light that evocative since Barry Lyndon ever again throughout the rest of his career and granted mm-hmm. there's only a couple movies between a and b there at that point but eyes wide shut again released after Kubrick's passing, submitted literally a day before he passed, it ends up functioning as not only a thesis for all of his themes, but also as this really great take on an era where Kubrick had been around to see the cultural repression of the 50s give way to the Enlightenment of the 60s, give way to the cynicism of the 70s, and then the Reagan fetishism of the 80s. And he was able to actually stick around long enough in the industry to see it boom back around, boomerang back around again to 1999, where we were back in the moral panics, because Mm -hmm. much like the 50s, the culture was settled. People generally weren't impoverished, except for all the people. People who were impoverished and you had Kubrick once again using major studio money to explore themes of perversion, of Mm -hmm. guilt, of shame. But for a new era that thought itself enlightened until it actually had to look true radical sexuality in the face. Now, when I say this, I'm saying this as a I'm going to date myself here. So sorry, listenership and y'all for that matter. (laughs) I was 10 when this came out. And this movie, I wasn't even allowed to look at trailers by my parents because the sex just, it gave off waves. Yeah. And this was sold. The fact that this movie was released in July is astounding to me. This was a major summer release from Warner Brothers, which just drops my jaw every single time. Not only because it's one of the best Christmas movies ever made, but because imagine now a director like Stanley Kubrick puts out a movie in the middle middle of july with warner brothers money competing with like whatever action spectacle armageddon, came out in right? 99 <laughs> or like 99 i think armageddon was 90 yeah but either way um the other reason the year is relevant is because by 1999 you had the new moral panics again you had people fretting about eminem about south park about professional wrestling you had another era where we were opening our horizons, and then people were responding to that with panic. And at the center of it, you have this movie about people trying to broaden their horizons and then having the response be fear and panic. Yeah. And this gets made a couple years after sex was just brought to your evening news with the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal, too, for the first time, really. So that that was also going on around this time of production. Well, exactly. The idea of the sex you have behind closed doors when no one is watching becoming public, Mm -hmm. which is an anxiety and a terror that is both wholly earthly, kind of mortal to everybody, and that the film milks for maximum impact. Because as much as anything, this is an excruciating exercise in tension. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it moves at such a deliberate pace, Mm -hmm. and um, especially the dialogue, like... Man, it just kind of like drips out of people's mouths. It's, you know what I mean? It's so scientifically told. Yeah. Just, yeah. And I think that kind of contributes to the dreamlike quality of the movie and um, the sense that, uh, you know, like the the world. And I feel like, you know, the, the, that's a running theme, I think, throughout all these movies. 
But you know the 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 New York that uh, that Tom Cruise is walking through in this movie, it doesn't feel like recognizable. You know what I mean? Well, partly and because it, does, it wasn't. Not, yeah. not to interject, but a lot of those were backlot sets because again, Kubrick wanted to do a New York City film, but hated crossing the ocean. <laughs> so a number of those scenes are transparently shot on green screen, which in a way becomes its own kind of surreal aesthetic. Yeah. And why? I wonder because yeah, again. The long shots or the profile shots of him walking down the street is just it's normal. It's just maybe it's on a set, like you said. But yeah, when he's walking, to, when, when we get the close-up shot of him walking towards us, still very frustrated over what's happened with Alice. It's that obvious green screen behind him, and I just don't understand what the well, decision I was. Well, I think about. that I love it. I think it does add something to the movie, though. It's well, so I think bizarre. it contributes to sort of the dream, the dream world quality yeah. of it. I mean, to me, there's a uh, there's the sense that we've become unmoored from time and reality mm. and that's kind of what i really love about it and i think that that contributes also to the fantasy element of it the idea of and i think it, it kind of pushes us in these directions that even our fantasies can be uh disappointing or terrifying or scary if we allow our minds to wander too much um you know stumbling upon i don't know like there's the sense that it's almost what's the word i'm looking for there's like uh Everything that all the places that he goes in this movie, they feel like places people go in movies and not in people's heads. Nick Nightingale, his name is Nick Nightingale, or yeah. the costume shop. Yeah, the which costume shop. doesn't even quite look the same when he walks into it under the light of day. Oh, I love which, that. Yes. Which is another thing that's really, really interesting about the film because it poses the it poses two questions and actually plays each out at a length that most films don't bother to. It asks the first question, which is the scene on which the whole film turns in which Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman get stoned together and she expresses her fantasies about a sailor at a hotel and he beset by visions of her fantasy tries to go out and have his own anonymous encounter now you get to see him pursuing the fantasy in a series of scenarios all the way up through the house and then you get to see the consequences directly of each and every step of his pursuit yeah and that second part is what i find really beautiful because you get to see the road not traveled in a way few people ever do yeah Bill not only gets to experience the height of desire, he gets to experience every step of the come down yeah. from um, Rade Sertabergia and Lili Sobieski in the costume store mm -hmm. being this kind of pedophilic pimp situation under the harsh light of the daytime to Vanessa Shaw's prostitute being diagnosed with HIV right after he narrowly missed sleeping with her. There is a kind of punishment yeah. for his indiscretions. Well, Nick, too. I mean, he, he was dragged out with a bruise on his face and looked scared, you know. Yeah. And at every step, right up through that incredible reveal with Sidney Pollock in the pool room at the very end, which is just talking about dialogue dripping out of mouths. I could, I could bathe in that sequence. <laughs> I could say that for a number of the scenes in this film, but yeah. that one especially, where it is dramatically it is nothing but two men in a room one of them telling the other one the full truth and it is riveting yeah well the space that kubrick does there is incredible too because there's a certain part of the conversation where um sydney pollock's character is in the corner of the room and tom cruise excuse me bill is at the very front of the pool table the conversation keeps going on and then bill moves to, to the other side of the room 
and now Pollock's character is at the front of the pool table. It's all one shot. Yeah. I noticed that this last time. And that not to kind of go off track here, but I think that's just an example of Kubrick being able to find space in a small billiards room for what seems to be like a 10, 15 minute long scene at that point. In the, at that point in the movie, we are well over two hours into the movie. We're, is it almost over? No. And to keep you that involved is another testament to, to his direction. And, and the fact that he still had it at 70 years old, what, months away from dying mm-hmm. is, is incredible. Well, there's an incredible command of craft at every level. And we can talk about... I mean, the extra textual stuff with this movie for hours, I will recommend there's a great, great article in Vanity Fair from, I believe, two years ago talking about the film's production and just telling little stories. My favorite of which was that Kubrick would encourage Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, who, again, for those listening at home, were the height of A-list stars at the time of this film's production. These were about as big of a this was about as big of a real life couple as you could cast in a movie Mm -hmm. at this time together. He would have them write notes about their relationship insecurities regarding the other that only Kubrick would see, but he would also tell each that he had the notes from the other person. Just <laughs> oh, God. So not only did he drag Tom Cruise onto a set to cuckold him for a year with Warner Brothers money, which I just love in principle, <laughs> but there was a sense of paranoia that informed those performances that I think is really important when you watch the film because there is a dread to this movie that just tightens like a noose until the very, very end of it. I think the, the further and further we get away from it, the stronger it is. Because at the time this comes out, again, like you said, this is A-list stars married. This is the couple. Oh, my God. We're finally seeing the, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman like really get into it. Days of Thunder doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> but knowing everything that's happened, especially to Tom Cruise as the years went on, and obviously as the relationship did evaporate, the tension is only that much more apparent. Like it goes beyond just a performance, I think. And that, that adds a whole other sense of unease to it. And I think Cruz gets knocked for this movie occasionally. I, I kept watching it this time thinking, who else could have played this role? Who else could have played Alice for that matter? And I don't know of anybody else, especially in the late 90s, that could have pulled it off for either performance. Absolutely, because I think, especially with the themes of secrets told and untold, which is crucial because... Kubrick doesn't let you see what Bill actually tells Alice, which is one of the most fascinating editorial choices Mm. in the whole film. You don't get you. There's this hard cut from them in the bed and him sobbing near the end of the film Mm. to her smoking a cigarette with tears of her own right in her eyes. You don't know the version of the story that Alice got. You assume it's the truth, but the film entirely leaves that to assumption. And then if you take this extra textual level of Cruz and Kidman's relationship and all the rumors about that relationship that stem from his presence in Scientology, mm. you can't help but read this as a film about secrets at every level of its existence. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I just wanted to point out, before we go any further, I think I've said incredible at least five times already. But you know what? The incredible it's too, a testament to the, it's, a, it's a testament to the incredible Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and honestly, I think there is something to be said for Eyes Wide Shut being this absolute demonstration of craft. And I mean, this was preceded by several all-time films. We're not disputing the merits of any one aside the other, but it's indisputable that he released 
a movie that would have been right at home in the mid 1970s in an era of Hollywood that was not receptive to that kind of movie really at all anymore, which makes it all the more remarkable. Yeah. And again, I'm a little older. I'm not, I wasn't 10 years old when this came out. I'll say that much. (laughs) I was well into my film buff fandom at the point, at this point. So the fact that I think was a a 10 years or a 12 year break between this and full metal jacket. 12. Yes. The anticipation for this was unbelievable, even as a, I'll date myself as a teenager in high school. And I remember when this came out, the reviews were not They were not kind. good. I mean, they were middling at best, yeah. right? I mean, there were some people that really defended, but some people were just really left, like you had said about Clockwork Orange earlier, yeah. or about him as, in general, left very cold by it. Yeah. But again, I think this is a, a deliberately cold movie. And if you can't, if you're just looking for some hot sex between two hot A-listers, <laughs> which to be fair, the marketing campaign didn't do them any favors, you know. But I also think there's you're, something really different. interesting in the fact that at the end of the day, for the restraint and the discipline of so much of the filmmaking and of the narrative in terms of what happens on screen, this is an incredibly sexy movie in a way that so much fair like Fifty Shades of Grey is still struggling to approximate. The sheer tension between Nicole Kidman and the one gentleman at the party early in the movie, yeah. most modern movies that can get a lot smuttier wish they were that genuinely erotic that's sandor savost by the way as an elder for me though in terms of it being a sexy movie or like we talked about earlier a sensual movie i think that's the peak in terms of a sensuality i think again sex permeates the movie but it's always very uncomfortable there's nothing titillating about anything that happens after that there's nothing there's nothing particularly titillating between um oh what's the prostitute's name again in this it's um I can't recall the character name. Vanessa, Vanessa Shaw. Vanessa the Shaw is the, the actress. There's nothing titillating about that sequence. There's obviously nothing titillating about the costume sequence. There's nothing really titillating about the mansion sequence. There's nothing titillating later on when he meets the, um, the prost- Becky, the prostitute's roommate. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of sex going on, but there's nothing to me that's very sensual about it all. And I think that's all, that's another thing. I think that people were reacting to when they maybe first saw it, thinking this was going to be another Adrian Lynn movie. This was going to be Fatal Attraction in some way, but yeah. it's not that it's not that ultimate for me, at least. Well, that's the thing. It There's nothing smutty about it, no. but it's a movie exclusively about the drive. But the thing that I find most remarkable about the film is that for the fatalism of so much of Kubrick's work, the films we've talked about today, the films we've talked about in past weeks and we'll go on to discuss – This is one of the only that seems to, if not confirm or assure it in any easy way, at least suggest the hope of salvation at the end. Yeah. Because when they resolve that they have no real answers to this and Nicole Kidman just answers him with this sort of bracing simplicity. (laughs) I don't know what to do with this. So let's fuck when we get home. You know, there's something kind of freeing about it in a way that Kubrick's endings don't tend to offer. Yeah. Well, it's literally the moral of film is you've got to communicate with one another. Right. Because the whole problem with the film, not the problem with the film, but the problem with the characters is that Bill leaves. Yeah. And he goes off on his own and he gets into a lot of trouble. I mean, and there's that brilliant part later on, the newspaper literally says lucky to be alive. And he's still so <laughs> jealous about, about Alice's non-actions, by the way, but just the fact that she fantasized about these actions yeah. that he still cannot just look down and understand. I'm lucky to be alive. I am ultimately in a, in a good relationship. I need, I need to go home. 
But what's also really interesting is for all the trouble Bill gets into by the end of the film, he also remains in a state of inaction. Beyond a couple of kisses here and there, Bill doesn't actually do anything That's either. That's the thing. He he gets kissed twice in this movie. Okay, He gets kissed by the prostitute and he gets kissed by Miriam. And they're both very... They're not. He doesn't. He doesn't return these kisses at all. Even at the end, when he kind of goes down to to kiss the corpse, mm-hmm. as a, almost as a thank you gesture, he even stops himself from doing that. And I don't know what I don't know what all that is is trying to say. Are we trying to say that good boy Bill, you were you were ultimately good, and so everything's going to be fine? I don't know. It's it's it offers it offers. But it's not it's not obvious by any means. Is what I love about it. It offers no simple answers in that respect, no. and I think it's very much a film rooted in the notion that everybody wants to step across the line. The question is how close you're willing to get, and if you're actually willing to do it when you get there. Well, it's a question. It's a it's the it's the tension between intimacy and fucking too. Yeah, which I think yeah. is important, and I think that he wants to go fuck when he leaves the 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 house but and uh that's what he tries to do and he fails Mm -hmm. um he goes to all these places where people are fucking not making love and uh and then because he seems incapable of making love or having intimacy with his wife at this point and that's why i think in the end she's just like okay well we need to fuck which is a very different word than make love you know so so that's what i that's what i've always taken from it is that there is a language that is missing between them that is uh and they're both unfulfilled and i think they just need to you know turn the dial a couple notches to rediscover what it is they love about each other. I do think if you look at 2001 as being a, an optimistic ending, <laughs> this is probably a second most optimistic ending then. So I'm really thinking about it. full metal jacket. Obviously not <laughs> shining. No. Well, clockwork, I think can be very, uh, it can be read in a multitude of ways. I almost it's think a strange kind of triumph. Yeah. And Alex, I also think know? Lolita, Lolita in a strange way. I like, I mean, it's like at least Lolita is in a relation like she's fr- she's not under his spell anymore. She's definitely not under his spell. And that's a and she's and I I guess that's like one of the things that I love about Lolita is just how how easy it is for her to cast him off and how little uh like it fit meant everything to him. Well, it and meant- if you If you think about Lolita being happy and Humber being dead is the most honestly happy way for that film to end for both of them. And cruelty for that matter. Yeah. (laughs) The two, the two, like, uh, the two monsters are dead, you know, in the end of that movie. A happy ending of a sort. And (laughs) I feel like a happy ending of a sort is as good a way as any to get us to the intermission break. When we get back, we're going to be talking cinematography and editing. We're going to be talking music. We'll be talking all kinds of fun things. Please stay tuned to Filmography. Welcome back to Filmography. If you're just joining us now, scroll back and start at the top of the podcast. What are you doing? (laughs) And if... If you're somehow just coming into the show halfway through the penultimate episode, we are, again, discussing Stanley Kubrick, specifically this week, Human Desire, as seen through the films Lolita, A Clockwork Orange, and Eyes Wide Shut. Now, before the break, we talked extensively about each of the three movies. Now we're going to take a closer look. Like American Beauty once told us, we're going to look closer. Mm. 
Um, I, I should be tarred and feathered. I don't even have a segue out of that. I just feel really bad about myself. But we are going to talk about cinematography and editing next because this is the episode where we finally really get to flex a little bit on Kubrick, the modern day filmmaker, as we remember him. And we're really going to get into that next week when we talk about some of his most visually iconic work. But for now, you're already starting to see Kubrick as Kubrick really take shape. Because with Lolita, especially immediately following Spartacus, which as we discussed last week was very much Kubrick taking his crack at the traditional Hollywood epic, Lolita bears a far more striking resemblance to the Kubrick that we canonically understand today. And particularly in talking about Lolita, I feel like if we're going to return to some of these issues of perspective, let's talk a little bit about the visual and how Kubrick sees these people. Because there's a shot that jumps out to me immediately mm-hmm. where um, Sue Lyon as Lolita is taking up the right two thirds of the screen with Humbert in the foreground on the left third. And she is laid out like a, a traditional pinup in a robe. But yet the thing that he's drawing your attention to is Humbert's face of consternation as he's trying to determine whether he's going to, again, cross that line. Yeah. I think there's a real sense of emasculation, obviously, in that scene. And I think that his closest cousin with the two other films would be Bill in that regard. And I think that the way that, that Mason is, is framed throughout this entire movie is to make him look like a loser. To make him look like somebody who, granted, he does, unfortunately, um, have an affair with Louisa, <laughs> as we've pointed out several times. But there's never a moment in this film that Kubrick allows us to think that he is somehow a winner in any regard. And that speaks to what you're saying about, about how she dominates the right side of the screen there. And he is still in the background. It's this hang, hang dog, puppy dog off in the distance who's always just trying to to make things work, even well, though and he, yeah. even though he shouldn't be able to one, and he and he won't be able to pull it off. Similarly, I think that the way that um, Claire Quilty is shot, Peter Sellers is shot, is um, he's always kind of positioned in a, a sort of omniscience over uh, mm. over uh, Humbert, like especially when they're in the hotel and he's watching from behind the newspaper with his um, his silent uh, cohort. And um, but just the way that like the the creepy smile that Peter Sellers is always wearing and just the way that we're, we're often seeing that he's always got the jump. He's always got the advantage on Humbert. There's something sort of very satanic about that character. The idea that you're being watched and that you're being fooled and played by this character. It's very unnerving to me. And um uh, especially when he's talking to him on the porch uh, yes. with his back to him. And we get those shots from Humbert's perspective where we're seeing his back. And, you know, and like, I guess if there, I don't love the um, the the fact that we see the end at the beginning, um, that we see him um, kill Claire right at the beginning. Of Which the is movie. a stark departure from the novel yeah, structure as well. Because it's told chronologically. Yeah. And, and I don't um, know. I, sorry, Randall. But I don't know why he did that because I think Kubrick feels that at the halfway point of the book, it kind of dips in terms of tension yeah so, he, but why would you then put the, the 
the big climax at the very beginning because now you're really diluting the second. I think half he of it. wanted the to set the audience expectation that things were going to get dark and violent, and that yeah, uh, yeah. it was like it's a reverse detective story in sort of some ways, and yeah. that he wanted audiences to know that this was going somewhere intense. Well, uh, and it also sort of in its manner. I mean, granted, Humbert's not the one getting shot on screen, yeah, but at the same time, it to going back to the Hayes code era gives this distinct impression. Okay. The pervert's going to get punished. Yeah. Now watch two hours of filth and perversion. Cause the pervert's going to get it. Yeah. And like, I, but I guess I loved, I guess that was one thing that I liked about knowing that he kills Claire, but he says like, I don't know who you are. Like at, when he meets him at the end, um, essentially. And so I guess it was interesting to me like, cause he didn't know who he was. And so it was interesting to me when he's talking to him out on the porch. And then like, I was like, wait a minute. I thought like he never saw him before. How are we going to get through this scene? How are we going to pull this off? And then, uh, so I kind of loved the shots from his perspective of only seeing the back and the side view of this guy. It was, it was another one where I felt like he was given, he was using, you know, the visual medium to give, uh, Claire Quilty this sense of power and this sense of, um, uh, a domineering sort of uh, omniscience is the word I keep coming back to. Yeah. Well, and if you're talking about the impact of looking, I addressed this in brief in the first half, but we should also talk a little bit about the impact of not looking then. Yeah. Specifically, the ways in which Kubrick works around the Hayes Code and the other restrictions of the time, because again, this is an extremely sexually charged film that depicts no on screen sex of any kind. I think as close as it gets to that, because obviously we talked earlier about the, the the fade out when she talks about the game, you know, that does, she, does he want to play a game with her, is the scene where she's dangling the egg over his face. Mm-hmm. And then just as he bites down, grabs her arm, we cut back down to to um, Shelley Winters calling up to them and saying, leave, leave him alone, leave him alone. Because there's, I, I feel that's the most uncomfortable scene for me because I do think that something sexual is about to happen there too. And that's an example of, again though, but they still don't show exactly what's going to happen there. But again, in terms of visual representation, going back to our first half discussion, this is the first time you watch him actively, knowingly, and willingly transgress upon that line. Mm -hmm. It's the first bit of contact at that point. Yeah. uh, Although, I mean, I think overall, though, I mean, this isn't necessarily cinematography, but I guess I'll just say that, uh, I'll say that this was maybe a failure of cinematography, uh, and I think that it was imposed by the Hayes Code and the the, the mores of the time. I never, I never ever quite felt, I, except for that scene that you mentioned, yeah. and maybe a couple other moments, I never felt, I never got the impression that they were sleeping together. That there was a sexual relationship happening. Um, I, I, they, they, you know, there's hints of it in the dialogue, and there is, um, you know, a closeness when they touch to some degree. But I think that overall, um, aside from the fact that I know that there is a sexual relationship happening here, I feel like I never quite, it never manifested in a way that felt palpable visually. Well, because visually, I think we're very much drawing attention to this joke of implication that everyone in town thinks Lolita is Humbert's stepdaughter. Yeah. 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 And also, I think the strength of the film, if anything, is the double entendres. Yeah. And I've got, can I, can I, can I name three here? Can I do my best James Mason impersonation? <laughs> Can't climax on what other two. Please do that. His voice to me is is endlessly funny. It's quite amazing. <laughs> um, here we go. So... Um, when he decides to move in to the yeah. apartment. What was your deciding factor, my garden? I think it was your cherry pie. <laughs> when he's 
when he's playing chess with, when he's playing chess with Charlotte. You're going to take my queen? That was my intention, certainly. <laughs> and then the the piece de resi- the piece de resistance, of course, is <laughs> you touch me and I go limp as a noodle. Yes, I know the feeling. <laughs> incredible, incredible bits, incredible bits. And I and I guarantee these hopeless hack censors back then. I guarantee went right over their heads. I'm telling you right now, right over their heads. <laughs> Well, and I'm that, sorry. I find that I found your impression to be hysterical. Well, thank you very much. Well, and it's also it makes the bot the movie bodier in implication than yeah. it almost would be in visual depiction. I mean, I say almost because at the end of the day, if you visually represent pedophilia, you're you, we're beyond the pale. <laughs> but again, this is not the first time we're going to invoke Serena film in this episode. Somehow, believe it or not, but I, I have to say I love some of the. The dumb broad comedy. I mean, like him unfolding the the cot with you know, the hotel guy. I was like laughing my ass off. I think it. I, the, my favorite bit of physical comedy is early on when when uh, Home is in, insisting upon. Um, I think taking Lolita home at one point, but the neighbors and Charlotte both kind of keep pushing him down, yeah. and he's helpless because he's got his his cup of coffee and his pie in one hand. I'm sure there's a lot of subtext there too, but. <laughs> I don't think the cot works for me though because oh, I th- really? it, it stands out so much. It it does, it does, and maybe it's just because um, the movie is about such uncomfortable material yeah. that uh, I don't know what. Now you're I'm... literally dealing with uncomfortable material with a cot. <laughs> 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 it's just that, like, I guess there's, I guess the best way to approach uh, there's almost something absurd about trying to tell this story. So I kind of enjoyed the moments, yeah. and and I'll say this though too, like. I guess the reason I laugh at your James Mason impression is because there's something clownish about it, like uh, about his oh, performance. No and yeah. I think that it's there's such a fine balance with playing a character like that, especially when you're hampered by, uh, you know, the strictures that they were at that time. But that's the thing is there's something buffoonish about him. And I think that in a certain way, the way, the fact that we're, that Kubrick films the cot scene like he does and allows it to go on as long as he does and to, uh, you know, zoom on the various aspects of it like he does. It, 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 I guess for me, it just helps play up sort of the, um, the idea that we're seeing a very buffoonish, very like, uh, pathetic person. In terms of staging, I mean, at the end, I laughed out loud deliberately when he is literally running away from her new home and she's calling after him like, Hey, we can keep in touch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be fine. And he's the one that goes away crying, you know, into his car. Whereas I feel like most other films at that time is always the quote unquote, like the damsel in distress or the, the distraught female who's running away crying and he's trying to be strong. And it's the total opposite here. And I think that was another brilliant piece of, uh, and that of goes, filming there. And that goes to Randall's point from earlier, which is Kubrick and Oswald Morris behind the mm-hmm. lens do a great job of drawing out. Humber is deeply pathetic. But if the visuals of Lolita draw out how pathetic that character is, Clockwork Orange is built in quite the opposite way. Yeah. Because at least until Alex is ultimately reduced to nothing and then subsequently built back up again, he's very much visualized both by Kubrick and by John Alcott as this almost this deified being the way the film looks at him in the milk bar when he's leading the droogs on the street even abusing the homeless man there is a prominence to his stature in every frame almost that is at odds with what is done to him by the end of the film yeah. well the very first shot is that intense close-up of him looking at us he's, yeah. the fourth wall's been broken right away 
and now we are with him in the film. We're not just watching him. We're not. We're not. We're no longer just observers. We're actually a part of him now, and as he and goes arguably on. complicit in a way, which yes. is central to what follows. And this is the la- it's that's the importance of the language too. Is we have to sort of hang on it because mm-hmm. it is so. It is his own language. Uh, we are getting all of our information through a muddled language, which means that we need to grasp even harder onto that character to be able to follow what he's saying. But I, yeah, you're totally. right. Right. I mean, the, one of the more iconic shots of the movie is after he knocks Dim into the water and jumps uh, and jump. You know, he kind of pulls the cane out behind yeah. his back and jumps down. And it's such like a badass shot, mocking. which, yeah, and it's mocking. But it also paints him as a supervillain, you know, mm-hmm. and somebody who is extremely powerful. Uh, we're, we're given that, you know, often. And uh, and just the confidence of his movements as well, I think, is very important. And um, and, you know, I think that's the thing, too is if we're speaking in terms of cinematography and everything you know the there's a dynamism to um those early shots the way that the camera moves with alex the way the camera uh celebrates him and um there's like a very kinetic quality to it all and then factor that in with the with the kind of kaleidoscopic nature of the world all the colors all the sexuality and everything and so once you get to the prison Everything's so drab there. You know what I mean? Mm. The shots are still beautifully composed, but there's just such an utter um, absence of color and an absence of sort of um, dynamism and life there that it really contrasts. And, and then especially when they go back to town and it's so gloomy outside. And like when the I always I always am drawn and like struck by and we'll talk about the sound in a minute. But like when um, Dim and um, I think I can't remember the name of the fourth Drew, not Georgie, but the other one. Uh, or maybe, oh, is Georgie the cop? Is I believe Dim and Georgie are the cops. Okay, the yeah, I was yes. thinking it was the other one. Uh, yeah, Dim and Georgie are the cops. Uh, but just like how gloomy that is when they grab him and they take him to that fucking like trough of water or whatever. It's like it's so like absent of life. And um, and that's something that always got me. Well, and what's really interesting is you get a lot of the traditional like Kubrickian rule of third symmetries in those prison sequences. Yeah. It never looks more like him with a couple exceptions than during those prison sequences from the nauseous close-ups. And I actually, as long as I'm throwing nauseous around as a buzzword, mm-hmm. there is a nausea over so many shots in this film, mm-hmm. which is something that really struck me upon revisiting. This is a film that literally seems bent on repelling the viewer at points. Yeah. I mean, especially when you have those mirroring images of, at the beginning, the man watching his wife being assaulted, and you get this nauseous, nauseous again, fisheye, wide-angle look at his agonized face with his eyes rolling back in his head in pain, and Kubrick yeah. just hones in on that image. Which and, he repeats at the end, which is even yes. more unsettling. And then he repeats it with Alex. Yeah. And, I mean, whether it's that or the scene of the man hearing Alex sing at the end, which is Jack Nicholson in The Shining to a T, there are are these Kubrickian hallmarks, but there's also just this lurid kind of, again, for lack of more eloquent or different phrasing, nausea that pervades over the film at large. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a wonderful inconsistency in in the fourth wall or the POV shots. Like you said early on, it's just the audience looking at Alex, looking at us. Then we kind of laugh when Dim gets thrown in. It's, it's, it's Dim that gets thrown into the, the water, right? Yeah. He looks up, like you said, Randall, and, and you know, Alex looking down. I'm like, ha, ha, ha. But then when we are now, after we watch the rape happen in, in the profile, and all of a sudden, Singing the Rain drops away, and the Wendy Carlos music comes in, and we are now looking through her eyes as the victim's eyes. 
right into him as he kind of hovers over us and, and mocks us a little bit more. The movie keeps you on your toes the entire time. Just when you think, I mean, I'm not saying that that scene is, you, you've settled into the scene at a certain point. You're complicit at this point, right? We talked about that earlier. But when you are, are all of a sudden just thrown into her POV at the very end there. Well, it also well, captures the chaos of the chaos of the violence. Yes. yes. You know, um, and the the disorientation of it. And I think it also uh, allows us to be both the um, attacker and the victim, you know, because mm-hmm. we see his POV, we see her POV, we feel the sense of power, we feel the sense of terror, but then we feel the sense of absurdity through it all via the music, via the the penis sculpture, the fact that he kills her with a penis sculpture. Oh, yeah. It's like, and just the way that those things are framed. He says so much through uh, cinematography in these moments, like the, just one of the great uh, thematic parallels um, or visual parallels that he does that helps draw one of the themes, I think, is, I mean, the way we open open we open with the droogs in the milk bar the four of them right and they're very posed uh and they're very much enjoying their own sort of villainy and then later when uh the old when the author uh locks him in the room with the music and then we come down below and we have the four uh the two the two like researchers plus his bodyguard uh mm-hmm. darth vader by the way yeah yeah david press yeah david and press and then uh uh the author and um they're all in profile in their own way and uh it's it very much evokes that uh and, and then especially like the the look of being this like the author is so pleased with himself just mm-hmm. like alex is you know and it's pleased in this sense of violence and you know there's this great thematic parallel that we're all corrupt you know in a lot of ways and we're all we're all we can all we're all capable and driven yeah. to those modes of violence you know what i mean what? and so i think just drawing that parallel between like uh it's not that alex yeah alex is a monster but we're all capable of that kind yes. of monstrosity you know and it's the idea that at least alex is transparent about what he is what's exactly. the excuse for the rest of us i know and that's the thing and it's so hard to you know it's it's so tough to talk about this movie in this age um uh, you know, I think rightfully in a lot of ways, I mean, um, but it, it's, it's a tough movie to defend because you really do have to get into, uh, it's hard to say that a filmmaker has earned the right to show what he has shown in this movie because the violence is so, um, I mean, I don't, that's the thing is it's not gratuitous, but it can feel gratuitous if you give it a surface watch. You know what I mean? Mm. I think that you really have to dig into the intentions of the narrative, uh, the context of it uh, within the the greater realm of it, and also just uh, the, the way that it shot, the music, everything about it, and the way that this is a direct comment on uh, violence and derangement and, um, you know, youthful psychosis to some degree. I mean, I think like the intoxications of youth, the 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 feeling, the sort of like sense of entitlement and um, what's the word I'm looking for? The sense that you're you know, you'll live forever. You know, I mean, that's all the stuff that Alex is thriving on early on in the movie. And um, and I think that that's but I mean, I don't think that if the violence was filmed straight, like, you know, I feel like, you know, modern filmmakers have this. You know, I mean, I and I'm very struck by it. Like if if somebody can shoot a scene of violence in a way that is so blunt, you know, that they mm-hmm. don't you rely on anything, it can be very effective. But in this movie, it needs the style to really um, hammer home the idea that um, this isn't glorifying it, but that it also is helping place the character in his own mental context. If this movie, for instance, Randall, I 100% agree with everything you're saying there, but the context 
It's Kubrick, first of all. It's, if it wasn't Kubrick, this, <laughs> pro- this probably wouldn't work. If you use the same script and give it to Ted Post, who did like <laughs> The Baby back in the 70s. The Baby? Uh, do you know this movie, The Baby? <laughs> it's just really just crude, bizarre, albeit entertaining for what it is. But he, I, I can only imagine what he would have done with some of these sequences, the violent sequences, especially the ones involving rape. They, we would not be talking about this movie today. We would not be talking in any type of any type of reverence about Clockwork Orange today. I, I think the only person that could have made this is Stanley Kubrick, arguably because it exists at an intersection of so many of his key interests that yeah. it's hard to imagine it being represented better. Mm-hmm. And on the same subject of Kubrick's key interests, especially as it relates to the visual, we're going to jump into Eyes Wide Shut, accepting that I could do an entire episode of this podcast just yeah. about how Eyes Wide Shut looks. Yeah. So uh, we're going to yeah. try to keep this as brief as we I can. I will try. But there is <laughs> oh there God. is just image after image after image to that film of all kinds, whether you want lustrous and wide angle whether you want close and intimate whether you want pov POV, visual surrealism the film has you covered this is cinematography porn in so many words the lighting (laughs) if we could just talk about that yes um right away something that really struck me this go around i was searching for some more things you know for this podcast i noticed that anytime there was christmas lights or christmas decor there was safety I started. I just started listing them off. At the the mansion. I mean, I'm sorry. At the at um, Sidney Pollock. I keep forgetting Sidney Pollock's character's name. It's Sidney Pollock <laughs> from Tootsie. Great director. I, he will always be Sidney Pollock to me. I'm sorry. It's Sidney Pollock's house. Um, in in his party, obviously, his Christmas lights all over the place. Beautiful white Christmas lights. The, you know, wreaths, everything else hanging out there. The bathroom, where the the the, the paramour, whatever you want to call her, has OD'd. Mm-hmm. No decorations, yeah, at all. Um, when you go to even the house of the prostitutes, when you go to the costume shop initially, Christmas designs, Christmas lights, everything else, everything else. When you go to the mansion during the orgy sequence, no Christmas decor. So there's some <laughs> what weird if there thing was? here about the you know, it's like <laughs> a huge say. Christmas tree in the background. Like, <laughs> what is what is the password, sir? Um, so there was Santa. that. So that's just in terms of thematically. Oh God. Santa. <laughs> no, I'm not going to be off here. Thematically alone, the way I think that set up is genius. But I know you really want to talk about this, Dom. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, secede the floor to you. It looks incredible. It does. And I think the light is a part of that, especially since so much of the light feels natural. It reflects in a way that all the feigned light of so many CG-driven movies in the modern oh, era yeah. fail at. Because... You get a sense, even with all the transparently fake sets that we talked about, that you are living in a real New York or at the very least the movie version of New York that you know from other films. Because I feel like as much as anything, like as much as Eyes Wide Shut might exist in any real New York, Mm -hmm. it also exists in the New York of fantasy, of film, of reverie. There is there is something surreal about it, whether those backlot style green screen shots or even um, the fact that when he's being followed by the stranger, which I'll talk about more when we get to our next segment, 
you get this sense that the city has never been smaller. Mm. So it's almost this weird puzzle box where Kubrick can manipulate perception of size as he goes along. You can be in these claustrophobic places, and then you can be out on the streets in the biggest city in the world, and then you can be out at the most isolated house in the New York suburbs, wherever the climax is supposed to take place. <laughs> I have and tried so hard not to use the word climax. I, I, and I've done a good job. So. We've made it over an hour. <laughs> and, and the host is the one who took it there. So I feel like we did good overall. But um, <laughs> during that sequence, though, again, the world feels like he could not be surrounded by more pitch darkness on all sides. Yeah. And then in the morning when he goes back to his apartment, at least temporarily, the world contracts again. So there's a sense of perception, not only dramatically, but in the visual sense that this film really toys around with. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the every time anytime there's an interior scene, the blue light coming in from the outside? But when they go outside, oh, this is regular pitch, it's pitch blackness. Yeah. What do you make of the I think it's off the top of the bat. I mean, I think it's just. It looks incredibly beautiful. The contrast is, is the first time you really notice it is during the Alice monologue when she's sitting against the window in that brightly lit bedroom and then that blue light is just coming in. And it's, it's just from the bathroom, I believe, at that one point. Too. And it's the kind Ooh. of cold light that only exists in movies. And I think yeah. it's a lot of that. Again, it's a New York that at once is familiar to us mm-hmm. and could not be more divergent from reality. And those things exist hand in hand. But I think it also, it's like, it reminds me of the... I don't know the heavy-handed aspects of. Uh, I'm thinking. I'm, for some reason, I thought of Natural Born Killers, like Oliver Stone, and uh, the Seymour Skagnetti scenes with uh, Tom Sizemore, yeah. and like how nightmarish those are filmed. Like, uh, I think that it's Kubrick's sort of very subtle way of, um, of to me at least, giving this uh, sort of uh, you know an ephemeral dreamlike atmosphere is to give us um, very subtle colors that creep in mm. and um, that at least signal sort of. Uh, ice nighttime. Um, this is Christmas, you know, uh, the whole idea that this is, um, you know, uh, uh, a sultry lit fantasy. Well, you mentioned earlier the name Nick Nightingale. Yeah. With that and the lighting and, and, and everything else, the, just the atmosphere, there's also a, like a noirish sense. Exactly. This movie that I don't yes. think really touched upon as well. Well, and I think that speaks as much as anything to how Kubrick imagines night. Because going back to his black and white films, night was always impossibly black when it arrived. Mm -hmm. And even in Full Metal Jacket, his last feature before this, if you think about the famous bathroom sequence at the end of the film's first act with Vincent D'Onofrio and Arlie Ermey's does, again, there is a blue coming in from outside. I think that kind of saturated blue, that high contrast blue as much as anything, is how he imagines night to look visually. And I think it's also there is such a distinction between... Between night and day in these movies, uh, mm. like because as you mentioned, you know it's the fantasy of the nighttime versus the harsh reality of daylight, and the fact that we, you know, you mentioned earlier, we see um, the pursuit, but then we also see the consequences, and that to me is really interesting. And so I think that the whole idea that people can kind of become intoxicated by moonlight in its own way is uh, is definitely something that. Um, helps draw that contrast uh, between that and then the next day, you know. So. Well, the, the night is so quiet, especially in this, and, and mm-hmm. against the romantic notion of New York being romantic at night. Limited sound as well at night, except for that. We'll talk about the score in a minute. <laughs> I can't wait. But anytime we go to the daytime and Bill's walking around, you're hearing 
cars, honking of cars. There's mm-hmm. no beautiful light going on here. People hustling and bustling in the street, shopping for gifts. It's only when it's that isolation at night where the creepy noirish elements uh, enter the picture. Well, I would absolutely agree. And before we move on from cinematography, because again, we could linger here all uh, night yeah, otherwise. I, I have notes and notes. I I want us to each pick one shot from any of these three films that lingers in the memory. I'll kick us off. Again, going to Eyes Wide Shut, and I just alluded to it a couple minutes ago, the sequence in which Tom Cruise is being followed on the street. Yes. Because there is a specific image within that where Cruise is, I believe, at the newsstand as that Ligeti score is playing, and we'll get to it again in a second, but he is watching this man simply stare at him, not approach, not walk away, just simply stand on the corner in perfect symmetry with the street and the sidewalk and stare. And there is something so uniquely, primally frightening about that, that it was making my skin crawl watching it in a theater, and I wasn't quite sure why. And that's so much of the marvel of the film, which is you're shaken for reasons you can't fully articulate. You just know on a bone-deep level that you are. Yeah. I think for me... And it it it's a it's a it relates to kind of being scared and being horrified as well. Is uh, we haven't talked much about the sex club, um, but for me, I think that masks function in a very interesting way here. I mean, masks exist sort of you know the theatrical always idea of it was that by putting a mask on someone, then you uh, you know you allow yourself to. Uh, put your own face on the character. You allow yourself to, you know, you're not being told how to feel in a moment, but there's also something just really horrific about that kind of immersion and that sense of unblinking. Uh, The mask dares you to put something on it. You know what I mean? It dares you to put your own face on it. And so as soon as we get into the, the mansion and Tom Cruise is wearing that mask and then we get all those POV shots, that's the shit yes. that really gets under my skin because I feel like I'm there and, and Kubrick lingers on it. Uh, the various POV look at the camera shots of the masks and they're all staring out at you. And then the one of the person on the second level and that zoom, I know it's like very, very uh, like iconic with that movie, but those shots are the ones that, and you know, it's. A, it's I think a, I texted you that last night. Didn't yeah. I? <laughs> I didn't know that that bothered you so much. No, I randomly you, just texted everybody this. Shot. You did, and I like screamed. It's, uh, <laughs> but to me, it's because I know it's that meme or whatever. But it's like I feel so seen. You know what I yeah, mean? Hey. And I think that's the thing is uh, there is sort of that innate quality of shame which is why they're all wearing masks but the idea but then there's also the tension and the anxiety that they're going to know i'm an imposter and Mm. just the idea and i guess like any time that in a movie where all these people are staring at you it will always get under my skin the idea that one character is being looked at and if you put me in the perspective of that character it's kind of like this is a really dumb it's like but just for me how much this will always work the shitty 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 remake of the house on haunted hill with like chris katan and shit um i'm adopted (laughs) that movie uh there's a scene when bridget nelson is or not bridget nelson uh the one from billy madison um sampras yes she is she is uh looking through a video camera and on the video camera she can like see all the doctors like performing surgery and then they stop and they all look at her i know it's a shitty movie but that that makes me like scream because it's like that's so scary to me anyways that's mine being found out 
Yes. Um, I'll be as big. We could really do like a top 25 all Kubrick best shots. Yeah. But I'll be basic because I really want to talk about this scene a little bit more. It's a Ludovico technique from Clockwork Orange. Yes. We mentioned earlier just the, the physical horror of it. I do not like... I, I, short story, I went in to get laser surgery under the impression that I would be knocked out during the laser surgery. But because I found out that I was going to have to be awake with the with the, a similar technique, with the eye, the eyelids kept open, having to say straight ahead as they scrape my eye, no. No. I don't know how people God, do it, no. and I really admire, literally admire people that can do it. So that's, that, that alone bothers me. The second big thing that bothers me, and we alluded to sound earlier in these movies, in the film Horse Feathers, with <laughs> Groucho Marx is singing I'm Against It at the very beginning, and he lets out this shout that's so loud that that primitive sound technology back then, it, there's almost feedback to his shout. And something very similar happens in this sequence when Alex just lets go and just shouts, screams. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's so loud. Like If you had headphones in, on, I'm assuming that there would be some type of a feedback going on. That is what always sticks with me about that sequence. Besides, obviously, the, the, the images that we're seeing on the screen, which, is very, which was done pretty good in a Parallax View, by the way, years later with Warren Beatty. <laughs> we'll be doing our Parallax View podcast, hopefully. <laughs> Beatty, Parallax filmography, cast. Warren Beatty, it'll be two episodes long. It's the sound from that sequence that, that bothers me more than anything else, and it really sticks with me. So that, for the purposes of having to isolate one scene, I will choose that sequence. I mean, we could pick any sequence from any of these films any of the films we've talked about in the past week but for the sake of condensing decades (laughs) of dialogue into but two hours a week we're gonna move on and now as i have promised we're gonna talk score and this is kind of gonna be an escalating scale as it ascends (laughs) so we're going to be starting off with Lolita and Nelson Riddle's score, which, Justin, as you mentioned in the first half, is very traditional Hollywood in a lot of respects in terms of the swooning, the violin sounds. Compositionally, this is old Hollywood material. It feels almost subversive, though, because like I, like we discussed earlier, it doesn't feel like it feels like it's it's in a way and maybe this wasn't the intent of the time but it's at least how i read it now but the the romantic um operatic nature of it all very much makes me almost laugh because the content to which it is accompanying is so perverse and i find so much of the world to be heightened in a way that uh it makes the music feel appropriate to it but also in a weird way i'm just gonna say the word perverse again it just makes me like giggle in a little way and i think it's the way that you know that we laugh now i think we're all so jaded now that if somebody tried to unironically use um a sweeping kind of string like that like in the way they did back in the old days on a modern romance i think we would laugh a little bit or it'd be played for laughs and maybe that has to something to do with it as well but i think that there's something subversive about uh playing that kind of music underneath something that is so innately um uh um 
disgusting and yeah. wrong. I mean, for lack of saying perverse again, yeah, disgusting yeah. is as eloquent a phrasing as any as well. But no, I think even but you could argue even by 1962, there was something subversive to Riddle's work on this film. Yeah. Because by then, the canonical sweeping romantic score, maybe not in the irony culture way it is today, but could certainly be read as satiric even at that time. Interesting. Yeah. All right, so interesting enough, um, Bob Harris is actually responsible for the, the sweeping theme we were talking about earlier, the, the quote-unquote Lolita theme. Nelson Riddle, responsible for the rest of the score. So I, I agree with you, Randall. I, I don't know how that would play today, but I think it, it really underscores the dark humor yeah. of the movie at the time. Yeah. I, I think, again, every time it pops up, it's these histrionic scenes of Lolita running back up the stairs to say goodbye or saying goodbye for the final time at the very end. And, of mm-hmm. course, the very beginning where we see the the painted toenails and how elegant how elegant it's all supposed to be in, in Hum's mind. Yeah. But it's not obviously elegant at all. It's awful. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that's happening here is, is disturbing. Yeah. Well, and if we're talking, talking the juxtaposition between elegant and awful, this is a good time to jump into Wendy Carlos's work on A Clockwork Orange, oh. which does these, once again, nauseous synth renditions of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and another number of other compositions. It's funny because Wendy Carlos... Um, was ultimately upset because once again Kubrick went with classical music as opposed to using original score. She actually did write a lot more music. That's actually out there, by the way. You can find her original score for this, her unused score. And the same thing happened with The Shining. <laughs> once again, it just kept using old themes and and didn't use all of her score. Here is once again, and I can't imagine this movie without it. Yeah, it's as important to, to the movie as. Kubrick is himself, really. It's a score setting an absolute sense of place, Mm -hmm. which is crucial to the film because a lot of the dystopian Britain you only get in illusions. You get the building Alex lives in. You get the streets he walks. You get enough to know that something terribly wrong has happened to modern society in the early minutes of the film. But simultaneously, through Carlos's music, you also get to once again go back to Randall's illusion, the funhouse aesthetic of the film. Yeah, exactly. It just you feels have, dirty. Yes. Exactly. You have these jaunty takes on these eloquent compositions that reduce them to a point where they feel ugly. Yes, it's well, so ugly. The score. I mean, this it literally pointed. Alex points out this is his actual favorite composition. So you can just imagine this is this music is always going through his head, whatever yeah. he's doing, whether he's you know taking part in the ultra violence or just shopping in record stores, which makes it even more uneasy that this is what's going on to this guy. This this almost pleasant upbeat music is going on when he's committing these horrible horrible acts exactly it offers in it's one of the cases rarely at that where score offers true insight into character in a certain way and i feel like not just the score but some of the ironic usage of music which if we're talking about clunker horns on this podcast we have to talk about singing in the rain at least briefly (laughs) gene kelly was upset about it's being used in the movie (laughs) oh was he yeah oh oh, yes well of course obviously (laughs) but but no it's uh and that too it's I think that it's I like that it's kind of woven into the uh, the story itself, you know, that it's kind of what gives Alex away. But I think that, yeah, the, the fact that he is so cultured and um, so taken by uh, music that is so otherwise innocent, you know what I mean, is oh, yeah. um, something that I think uh, is it gives it another like layer of, you know, 
comp- I mean, I think it's part of what makes Alex appealing in a certain way is that he is so taken by uh, by culture and by I mean, you know, his obsession with with Beethoven and then um, and then show tunes like it's not what you would expect. You know, what I it's mean? jaunty. Yeah. And it's like and yeah, that's the thing is he's such an upbeat charming person who is capable of such um malignant darkness well and as much as kubrick might have thumbed his nose at an ethic like this it also does something to give an overtone of these could be your kids you know there's yeah. something mm-hmm. very mod 70s about a lot of the aesthetic of the way kubrick imagines the future in this film and it very much dovetails with a lot of his known anxieties about things like again youth panic or at least the cultural fears that that engendered during the middle half of the 20th century mm-hmm. or middle third rather there aren't middle halves of anything but um 25 eh, yeah there you go <laughs> i just want to also say though that like the sound design in itself is very jarring mm-hmm. and i always go back to like when uh he's having his head shoved in that water trough by the cops and um just that that like clanging that like steel metal clanging that just resounds it's so um what's the word i'm looking for it's just like so desperate it's so um desolate like and um and jarring and it just makes i remember it like made me like shiver whenever i watched well there's that, a very you know? there's a tactile quality to a lot of kubrick's films and yeah. if doing this series has taught me anything it's that much as anything it's there is something distinctly physical about the way in which Kubrick represents the visual that really jumps across that comfortable divide between viewer and film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and if we're talking discomfort, then let's talk about <laughs> Ligeti's Musica Ricercata. That is probably a very Midwestern pronunciation of that. <laughs> Musica uh, Ricercata. Ricciacata, yeah. See, you're being... James Mason would say, um, uh, Ligeti's Musica Ricciacata. Lolita, come for the criticism. The piano again. Please, Lolita. Anyway, sorry, I had to do one more Mason. Um, this, this piece doesn't show up. It could, it could, you probably could have found a, a, a place for it earlier. I love that it does not show up until it absolutely has to. He holds off on that thing for like an hour and 40 minutes, or yeah. which is wild God. because, again, having been people who grew up at one age or another during the film's release, that plinking piano cue was crucial to the promotion of this. I was going to say it is in the, the promos. You're right. It yeah. Is in the promos. But still, even as a again, as being able to retain all this as, as somebody who was a little older when the movie came out. I wasn't convinced it was going to be in the movie. I thought maybe that was just a temp track, too. Or sure. that was found from something else to make it an intense trailer. But when I finally saw the movie, I thought, oh, here we go. Here's the payoff. And the first time you hear it is when he's discovered at the mansion. Because exactly. It is, it is the aural representation of his initial shame. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then it becomes the representation of that shame throughout the entire back half of the film. And I wonder, did John Williams must have taken some type of a cue for that for the Jaws score? Because the build up, the way it builds up, it's da, 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 and then this is ding, 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 ding. It gets quicker and quicker and quicker. The pace. But I, but I think the key is that Jaws eventually expands into a whole progression. At least if you listen to the full version of and the this Jaws is just theme. The... <laughs> I was gonna say slow, slow, fast, 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 slow, slow, fast, fast, fast. Yeah, you're right. And then you get that one almost apocalyptic down note at the very end, almost this 
if not bass, then certainly a tenor note yeah. that kind of lays it to rest. Yeah. It just that's like it's such nightmare fuel for me. Like it it just represents anxiety to me like so intensely. Um, it makes me like uh, I don't know. It, it genuinely sounds to me the way my anxiety feels. That's absolutely <laughs> where it just it slowly rolls in. And you have you have Jocelyn Pook as the music supervisor who has a couple great choices throughout. The use of Chris Isaac is also yeah, terrific. Yeah. Could use a little. uh <laughs> Wicked game there. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I do have a serious question. If they, I, I love Wicked Game. It's a great song. Yeah. If they had used it in that sequence when you know they're making out during the mirror, this would have been a serious ding on the movie, right? Yeah, I, I, I would argue that there is such a divide between like the melancholy of Wicked Game and then just Baby did a bad bad thing. Which, as songs go, Chris Isaac's. Baby Did a Bad Bad Thing is a song that fucks. I think we can yes. all agree. It's an active song. Yes. And <laughs> so accepting that it is indeed a song that fucks, it, it it very much adds something to that scene because there is there is a kind of like sweaty absolute sin, for lack of better phrasing, that hangs over that song that it really lends to the scene, which in turn kind of puts that sequence at specific odds with the detachment and the dread of a lot of the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. It's the lust that precipitates everything that follows. Yeah. Something, another piece of score that gets lost, obviously in that very memorable piece of music is the ritual yes. when he gets in there with the org where our good buddy, Nick Nightingale is playing the organ and it's, I think it's called mass ball. It's an adaptation. It says you're by Jocelyn Pook of early work backwards priests. And that is also extremely haunting and unsettling. And that goes on longer than you expect it to, right, too. You think right. it's going to be a couple of minutes. That's about five minutes long right yeah. there. Also very unsettling. You, think, you feel like that's going to be the peak unsettling music. And we are sorely mistaken about five <laughs> minutes later <laughs> when poor Bill is found out. It's, uh, yeah, even earlier on in the movie, there's a little bit of... A little bit of score, but it really doesn't start to creep in until halfway through. No, Ligeti is wild. the center of the yeah. film, and it really foregrounds that piece in a way that makes it an integral part of the rhythm of the movie. Yes. Yeah. So we started long ago talking about how does Kubrick perceive desire. So now that we're coming up on the end of the show... I'm going to pose you the same question again, but with just a little bit of a tweak. And the tweak will be, how does Kubrick understand desire as it relates to the modern world? Oh, I'm desire to me in these movies feels uh, very much like a, um, a byproduct of, or I think that power is power ultimately becomes a byproduct of desire in these movies. Um, I don't find these movies sensual at all. Yeah, that's uh, what I was. Yeah, I think maybe Eyes Wide Shut has moments that I think are arousing, um, but and and obviously that's like you know like we discussed is maybe the most uh, hopeful of these movies. But you know I don't find anything whatsoever sensual about Lolita, which is a movie that I find to be, if anything, about. I mean, at least from a modern perspective, that movie to me is all about um, an abusive relationship. Uh, it's it's even it's less even about pedophilia than it is. Uh, it doesn't say anything 
powerful about pedophilia, I don't think. It, no. be, it says something more about abusive relationships, the idea of men perceiving women as objects, the idea of um, trying to control a woman and being undone by the fact that you can't control a person. And um, whereas Clockwork Orange for me is a movie where, uh, you know... I think desire is uh, ultimately per- is is inevitably perverted by uh, one's desire for chaos, and um, it's so easily manifested into violence. And then in Eyes Wide Shut, I think that it's you know a cause of anxiety, honestly. So I, I don't know. It's like I guess desire for me in these movies is um, something to be grappled with rather than something to luxuriate in. I will 100% agree once again with you, Randall, on that. I, I I don't know if Kubrick is always trying to put forth any type of message in his movies, but if you do want to look at these characters and their various acts of desire, I feel like Bill is ultimately rewarded for not going all out and acting upon the desire that yeah, he has. Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. Whereas, obviously, Hum is destroyed by the end mm-hmm. and obviously you know dies of a sickness in prison awaiting, you know, awaiting trial. <laughs> God bless him. <laughs> And Alex obviously is deviant throughout and gets and he gets his druthers. Is that the right way? I, I don't think druthers has been used in about forty five years. So I might my well dad use it here. uses druthers a oh, lot. Well, there you go. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. But no, I think I think what you yeah, like with Alex though, I think that desire is a is a concept that to him is uh, ultimately corrupted. And um, but that's the thing is he is his reward in the end is that. Uh, he comes back around to that state because he's taught to fear desire through the the Ludovico um, process. Like yeah. he's taught to fear and be revolted by desire. But in the end, when he comes back around to it, it's uh, it's a cause for celebration, even if his version of it is intensely corrupted. But everyone in the movies is so. And I think his view of desire is totally sexual. But I think Hum's warped view of desire is sensual. I do think he he desires her, not just sexual, but he he. Does feel very aroused by Lolita in a way that I don't think Alex has ever felt aroused about anybody else. I know? agree with that, um, but I think even more than Alex, that desire manifests as power and oh, as yeah. a desire to control. Um, and I wonder if that, if I had read the book, I would have a different reading of that character too. I think that would obviously seep its way into you. Do there's no you never develop a sympathy for Humbert, but no, in no, reading, no, no, no. but in reading through the book, the one thing that jumps out is that. It absolutely it drags you clawing and screaming into his perspective for yep. better and worse alike. Yeah, he be, like that's the thing is he believes he loves her. Yeah, it's a full yeah. immersion into true pedophilic infatuation, and whether that's of artistic value or not is a debate we'll have forever. <laughs> and just and then to top it off with the all eyes wide shut aspect again of the controlled desire leading to a, a possibility of happiness. That's what the ending kind of. Um, shows us because Alice even says she's not 100% certain if, if they're gonna live happily ever after, but it's possible, yeah, especially if they just go home and fuck, yeah, which is just always a great idea, by the way. <laughs> Anybody out there who's ever find themselves lost, just find a loved one. Um, I, I'm not saying that that message is necessarily correct in any way. I don't know if Bill needs to be rewarded, but the bottom line is he is essentially rewarded in this movie, despite everything, yeah, and that's uh, and that's that. <laughs> 
And that is indeed that. <laughs> thank you to both of you for joining me. Thank it you. It was fun. Right. Thank you, as always, to Cat Blackard and Michael Rothman for all of their support behind the Consequence Podcast Network. We will see you next week for the fourth and final episode of Filmography Stanley Kubrick on July 5th. So please stick around for that. You've already come three weeks. Why not see it through to the very end <laughs> now? Right. Um, as always, you can find me on Twitter at D Suzanne Mayer. You can find my work at consequencesound.net. Where can the goodly people of the internet find you two? Wow, same website, consequencesound.net. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Randall Colburn. That's my name. Um, you can find me there. I don't post a lot because I'm not good at it, but I do post things that I like that I write on there. But yeah, you can find my work on Consequence Sound and the AV Club primarily, but you know, I'm, I'm bouncing around here and there. And you can find me on Twitter um, at Justin Gerber seven, because I've been so frustrated with Twitter so many times over the last decade that I've constantly deactivated my accounts. And then I go back, I think I'm on my seventh go around. <laughs> Hence the seven. <laughs> You'll find some terrific takes on sports, uh, film, music, television. We're talking all of pop culture. It's all there for you. Whatever you want, you'll find a little morsel of each. I'm very excited about it. I can't of course, I can't promise that. <laughs> Randall's great tweets, don't worry. He's a great re- retweets too. <laughs> I will say, um, yeah, the Losers Club podcast is Randall. It's, it's a weekly podcast dedicated to the the books, the movies, and all things news when it relates to Stephen King. And we have a big summer coming up with the Castle Rock series coming from Hulu. And yeah, if you're in Chicago, we're hosting um, a film festival at the Music Box Theater. Greetings from Castle Rock, movies that are all, uh, not all, but most are built around the fictional town of Castle Rock, which is a big setting in Stephen King. So if you have an interest in King, we guarantee that you will find something that you like on this pod. We're not as sophisticated as we tried to be on this pod. I will say that. I really appreciate your sophistication <laughs> here. I do. Um, yeah, so I don't know where to go from the point that you are basically the dream of Grantland living on on Twitter, Justin. So I'll I, just... I really am. I feel like I'm a mixture of Shea Serrano, <laughs> Bill, Bill Simmons, Sean Finnessy, Chris Ryan, Juliet Littman. We're all, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all one. Put yourself over. <laughs> Who needs the ringer? Let's you got my this. Twitter feed. <laughs> So we are not the only podcast on Consequence Podcast Network by a long shot. In addition to the Losers Club, which these two have mentioned, you can also listen to Lior Phillips' This Must Be the Gig, an interview series about the definitive concert experiences of some of your favorite musicians. You can also listen to Halloweenies. I should have also mentioned Halloweenies. I'm also a co-host on that podcast. We are going. It's a monthly podcast, limited series. We're going month by month, dissecting every existing Halloween film from Halloween. God help us all. We haven't got there yet, but we will be covering the Rob Zombie films leading up to David Gordon Green's Halloween this October. It's been a lot of fun so far. We are going to be covering Halloween 5 this month. One of the all-time greats. (laughs) This could go on for hours, though. I will say that. So buckle down because we do go long on these episodes. You can also listen to TV Party, Clint Worthington and Allison Shoemaker's take on all things television, on-screen and off-screen, every week on Consequences Sound. Once again, you can find us as a podcast on Twitter. You can find me at D. Suzanne Mayer once more. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Filmography, a filmmaker's podcast. Please, again, leave us a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or wherever you procure fine podcast content. 
Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequencesound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. Thank you again to CPN for their unyielding support, and we will see you next week for the grand conclusion. Consequence Podcast Network.